Well, good morning. Welcome to Restoration Church. It's good to see you all here. My name is Dan Brown. I am one of the elders here at Restoration, and it's uh, my privilege this morning to have the opportunity to um, just share with you some truths from the Word of God. Um, Last week, um, I started two weeks that we're going to be spending going through the Lord's Prayer. And so hopefully, you know, in the last week, maybe some of the things that we talked about impacted your prayer life. And one of the things that I was thinking about was just in, in my own life, the ways that I have had the, the privilege uh, of seeing God answer prayers. Uh, you know, as I was just thinking about it, even this morning, you know, how I can see the hand of God and his answers to prayer, you know, from, from early on in my life to, to even just recently. A couple just a couple quick stories that I wanted to share as we get started. And just maybe you can be thinking too about how has God answered prayers in your life? But um, two things, uh, and I've, I've shared part of this story previously, one of the messages. But um, when I first started out in ministry after I finished seminary, I was living in a small town in, in western Washington. Uh, a town of about a thousand people. And I was a young, single guy. So not a lot of prospects. Um, for, for anybody that I was going to marry. And it was, it was, I was feeling pretty hopeless, quite honestly, about the, the, the fact that if I would ever have the opportunity to get married. And so I remember the, um, the elders at our church and our, our, our pastor, we were meeting at uh, one of the, the elders' homes, and we were going through uh, a, a study together about just living lives of, of being dependent on God and experiencing Him and seeing Him work in our lives. And and part of that one, one week was just we were sh- going around and we were sharing um, just some of our, our deepest needs that we had and praying for one another. And I, I vividly remember that group of men as I shared, you know, my desire to, to, to find a spouse and to be, be married someday. That group of men gathering around me and laying their hands on me and praying that, you know, God would somehow work and, and orchestrate and um, that I would have the opportunity to marry someone. And it was probably, I'm trying to think, it was probably about three or four months after that, that the senior pastor and I went away to Cannon Beach Conference Center, and we were able to attend a pastor's prayer summit, which was just a group of pastors from all over the, we, the church was in Lewis County, Washington, so it was pastors from all over Lewis County that all gathered together for four days of just guided prayer and meditation upon the Word of God. And while we were there, one of the exercises that the facilitators of the summit um, encouraged us to go through was they told us the story about how, you know, the children of Israel would, they would build altars to God to commemorate events. And they, they would go out and they would gather rocks and they would, they would stand them up and there'd be these standing stones that would commemorate events and things that God had done. And so they encouraged us to go out in the different parts of the beach and the town and to begin to meditate on in our lives, what are things that God has done in your life? Ways that you have seen him answer prayers. And we were encouraged to, to grab a rock for each one of those things. We were going to come back and we were going to, in, in essence, build an altar in the middle of the room there. And take all those rocks and put them there as we shared some of the different ways that God had answered prayers. And so I went out that, that afternoon and went out to the beach and I was walking and, and praying and, and picking up rocks. And I can't say that I heard an audible voice, but I, I heard a, just a sense in, in my spirit that as I was walking and I'm looking down at the ground and in the middle of, of the sand on the beach there, Cannon Beach, I, I see this, this rock. And I, mean, I can still picture it in my mind exactly what it looked like. And as I looked down and I saw that rock, it was like God was saying to me, Dan, you need to pick up that rock because that rock is my promise to you that I'm going to give you a wife. And so I, I bent down, and I remember picking the rock up, and I went back to the room, and, you know, we went around the room, everybody was putting their rocks on the table, and when it came my turn, I got up, and I started laying all the rocks on the table, and I got to that last one, and I said, you know, and this rock, and I told that story to the guys in the room, and they, they had all been guys that had prayed for me about this, and I said, this is a rock I'm not going to put on this table, I'm going to hang on to it, because this is a promise from God to me that he is going to give me a wife. That was in, trying to remember the, the timeline, that was probably in April, May of 90, what would have been 95, right? 
because um, it would have been, because I remember, because we got married in, I don't know, I'm not even going to try, my mind's shot, <laughs> 96, we got married in 95, we got the 26th of 95, right, there we go, so that was 94, there we go, <laughs> I should have wrote that down, uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, so that was about three months before Trish set out on her mission to, to set Malian up, and that's the story that I've kind of told before. So it was about a year and three months after I picked up that rock that um, Malia and I got married, and I was able to the next time that we I went to Cannon Beach, you know, tell the guys that I was engaged and was going to be married, and, and it, it was just, it was an amazing time and just seeing how God um, worked and, and answered answered those prayers. And, you know, if you think about it in your life, if you've been following God and walking with Him for any length of time, you have probably seen Him answer prayers in, in similar ways, some maybe even greater ways. And it's those kinds of stories are testimonies that I think we all need to share with one another. Because it's easy to forget. As many times as I could tell stories about things like that that God's happened in my life, how many other days are there that you and I both, we get frustrated and discouraged because there's something that we know that needs to happen and we're just like, I don't know if God's ever going to come through. You know, we've been praying for this for years and God still hasn't answered. Is he, is he really hearing me? And we forget about all the times in our lives that God has come through and he has answered prayer we forget the truth of the fact that he's always listening he always hears our prayers and that's what we want to talk about this morning as we finish up talking about the lord's prayer so let's go to god in prayer as we start and then we'll dive in father i thank you so much for your your love for your mercy for your forgiveness that we're going to talk about this morning for the ways that you have answered prayers in my life, the way you've answered prayers in, in most all of our lives, God, I know. I praise you for that. I thank you for the wife that you have blessed me with. I thank you for our children. I thank you for Restoration Church and even the whole other story I could tell about how you brought us here to be a part of, of this amazing body of believers. I pray, God, this morning that your, your spirit would speak to our hearts, that you would remind us about truths maybe of prayer that we've forgotten, that you would refresh some of those things in our mind, and that we would leave this morning with just a renewed passion and heart and desire to come to you in prayer and remembering the aspects of prayer that Jesus is teaching us about today, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 6 is where we're at. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We've got some ushers there in the back who would be happy to bring you one. Um, But Matthew 6, we're looking at verses 9 through 14. The Lord's Prayer. And as we talked about last week, one of the only things the disciples that we have recorded in Scripture asked Jesus to teach them was, Lord, teach us to pray. And that prayer that He taught them is recorded here in Matthew and it's also recorded in the book of Luke. So let's look Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 14. Jesus says, "Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation." but deliver us from evil. So last week we looked at the first two parts of that prayer. We looked at the idea of worship. That's that first phrase that Jesus has there, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And we talked about how God is both our Father, but He is also the almighty creator of of the universe. And our response to God has to balance both of those things, acknowledging and worshiping Him for who He is as our Father and also as that almighty creator of the universe. And then as we recognize who God is, the next part of prayer that Jesus teaches us about is submission. 
We, we acknowledge who he is and we come to God in submission. And that's your kingdom come, your will be done. And then out of that submission to God is the first part we're going to look at this morning. And that is the idea of dependence. And that's the next one there in verse 11 where Jesus says, Give us this day our daily bread. For, the, for us as followers of Christ, if you are a believer, you have to realize that a huge part of being a follower of Christ, actually, I would say one of the biggest parts, the place that it has to begin, is with acknowledging our dependence upon God. Because I would say this, if you believe that you are independent from God, that you don't need God, if you value your independence so highly you don't want to submit to and follow God, that independence is rebellion against God. Go back to the very beginning of the Bible. What happened in the Garden of Eden? In the Garden of Eden, God created this beautiful garden. He gave Adam and Eve everything that they needed. He just gave them one rule. This one tree here, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that tree. And what do they do? Satan come, Satan tempts them, and he says, if you eat from that tree, you will become like God. You'll no longer have to rely on God and depend on Him and come to Him to provide for your needs, but you then can become like God. You can discern good from evil. You can make those kinds of decisions for yourselves. You, in essence, can become a person who is independent. And that was the choice that they made. And when they made that decision, when they made that choice to become independent from God and to say, God, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to do what you're, you've called me to do, what you've asked me to do. I don't want to follow your rule anymore. I want to play by my own rules, do my own thing. That is when sin entered the world. They rebelled against God because they wanted to be people who were independent and that began the slide and you know the things that have brought our world to the place that it is today. And, and, and in, in reality, I would say that the root of any sin that any one of us struggles with comes down to that same thing. Are you going to be a person who lives in dependence on God and says, God... I'm going to submit my life to you. I'm going to depend on you. I'm going to follow you and do what you want me to do. Or I'm going to be independent. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to make my own choices. I know what you've called me to do. But here's the way that I feel like I want to live my life. But any relationship with God has to start with submission. Acknowledging that God is the one who is in control, that he is the one who is the only one worthy to be king and lord and to rule in our lives, and that we need to follow him and acknowledge our dependence on him. In fact, you know, this passage that we're looking at, Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, it's not just something that just exists by itself. It's part of a larger sermon that Jesus was was preaching, a, a time that he was teaching that day. We, we commonly refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. The very first phrase of the Sermon on the Mount is the first one of the Beatitudes, where Jesus, as he is laying out in the Beatitudes, what you have to do to be, be a part of his kingdom. If you are going to be one of his followers, this is what it's going to look like. This is how it's going to change your life. And the first step in being a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus says the first one of the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 6, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit. Somebody who is poor in spirit. And we all know what poor is. If you are poor, it means you don't have enough. And we usually think of poor, you know, in terms of, you know, monetarily. Not having enough. But Jesus says if you are poor in spirit, you are acknowledging spiritually you don't have enough spiritually you do not have what you need to enter into a relationship with god to be a part of his kingdom 
to be a follower of Him. On your own, that cannot happen. You need to acknowledge spiritually, I'm not enough. I know that I need God. And that's why Jesus came to provide that way for us to come to God as we acknowledge our need to come to Him. So this is the idea of give us this day our daily bread. The idea of dependence. It's not being independent from God. It's being dependent upon Him and coming to Him daily. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, the group that He was talking to is a group of Jews. And as he talks to the Jews about, give us this day our daily bread, almost certainly the first thing that's going to pop into their mind when Jesus talks about God giving daily bread to Jewish people, they're going to go back in their history, early on in their history, to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 13, God has just delivered the the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea. They're out in the wilderness now. And what's the first thing they do? I mean, we, we talked earlier about we, we see God answer prayers and we forget so quickly about how God has, has answered our prayers and how he's provided. Children of Israel were no different. They've just seen God, you know, 10 plagues, you know, bring, turn the, the, the water into blood and bring locusts and frogs and darkness and all these things. And finally, he kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And they release the children of Israel. They say, go, leave. And don't just leave. Here, take all of our our gold and our silver and everything you're going to eventually need that God knew they'd need to build their tabernacle in the future. God said, uh, the, the Egyptians say, take all of that and go. And so God delivers them without any kind of a battle that they had to fight, delivers them from slavery in Egypt. They come, they come to the Red Sea. Now they're trapped. The Egyptians are coming after them again. They're trapped between the Red Sea and the Egyptians. God, what are we going to do? Moses, how are we going to get out of here? And God performs this mighty miracle, parts the Red Sea. They cross on dry land. The sea closes on the Egyptians and destroys their army. Once again, God's delivered them. They see God do all these things, and now they're in the desert. And they're saying, God, how are we going to eat? Yeah, you can get us out of Egypt, but now you've brought us here into the desert to die. And so they begin to whine, and they begin to complain. They begin to doubt God. So what does God do? God, again, provides. He says, I'm going to give you every day a bread. It's going to come on the ground like dew. And you can go out every morning, and what you need to survive for that day is going to be there. The Jews called it manna, which means what is it? It was this wafer that, that tasted like honey. And God, for every day, for the 40 years that they were wandering in the wilderness, provided that for them. And it was there every single day, and they had to go out daily and collect it. And if for some reason you begin to doubt that God was going to continue to provide, and you say, you know, I'm not sure that God's really going to come through tomorrow and provide this manna on the ground again. So today, I'm going to collect more than enough. Or maybe I'm going to be lazy today, and I'm just going to collect all that I need for today and tomorrow so I can sleep in tomorrow. I don't have to worry about going out to collect it. You know what would happen on that second day if you didn't want to go out and collect it? What you'd collected on the first day, by the second day, it would be moldy and full of worms. God provided what you needed today for today, but tomorrow he said you still need to be dependent upon me for what you need tomorrow. It was a daily dependence on God with one major exception. One of the commandments that God had given the Israelites was remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So on every Sabbath, God said, I don't want you on the Sabbath, on the seventh day, I don't want you to go out and collect manna on that day. On that day, I'm gonna, the day before, I'm going to provide more than enough manna for you. So you, on that one day, the day before the Sabbath, you collect twice as much. But God, it'll get moldy. That's what always happens. No, you collect twice as much, God says, and it will be good for two days. And on that, that day and that day only, on the Sabbath, the bread you'd collected the day before would still be good. God provided for them every day that they were in the desert. He provided, He met their needs, and there was always more than enough. And it's the same way for us. Maybe God's not going to physically provide us bread, but God physically and spiritually provides us what we need every day 
for the day that we have ahead of us. We come to Him in worship. We submit to Him because of who He is. And then we acknowledge that we are dependent upon Him to supply all of our needs. Just a couple verses to illustrate this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Paul says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. A few verses later in the very chapter we're in, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus has been talking about, you know, don't worry about your physical needs. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. God will supply those things. And he says in Matthew 6.33, But do this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, talking about the physical needs that we have, will be added to you. It's daily coming to God and as we seek him and we seek his kingdom first. He provides what we need from day to day. Uh, One of my professors in in seminary, Michael Wilkins, said this as he was writing about this passage. He said, we need to live with a continuing conscious dependence upon God. Every day, we need to be continually living with that conscious dependence upon God, recognizing that He is the one who supplies our needs. He is the one who provides for us, and we are dependent upon Him for that. Um... There's another guy, um, Rich Mullins. I don't know if you, you're familiar with him. He's a, a, he was a Christian singer and songwriter um, about 10, 15, 20 years ago. wrote um, Awesome God is probably his most well-known song. Um, but he, he did a lot of writing, um, just you know, journaling and writing like that as well. And one of the things that he, that he wrote as he was talking about this idea of faith and walking with God is he said this. He said, faith is walking with God. The biggest problem with life is that it's just daily. You can never get so healthy that you don't have to continue to eat right. There is no momentum. The only thing that praying today is good for is today. How many times in our Christian life do we feel like, you know, I'm I'm doing so good. I've been doing my Bible study. I've been praying. You know, my, my, my walk with God's going pretty good. I think I've got enough stuff, good stuff going on I can take today off. I don't have to. And then one day becomes two days, becomes three days, becomes a week, becomes a month that we're not, you know, spending time in the Word, coming to God in prayer, acknowledging our dependence upon Him. Walking with God is a daily acknowledgement of our need for Him and our dependence upon Him. And so that's the idea that Jesus has. When he says, give us this day our daily bread. It's not just the physical bread that we eat, but it's the spiritual bread that we need for our walk with God and the strength to live and follow him. Then he goes on in verse 12, the next part of the prayer that that Jesus is, is teaching us about the different aspects of prayer. And that's the idea of confession. Where he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and in the Jewish mindset, and the Jewish teaching, when the Jewish rabbis would teach, they would teach the, the, this concept that your debts, your, your sins are thought of as debts to, to be paid, debts before God. And one of the cool aspects of, of the Jewish law was this idea of, of the thing called the Jubilee. Every 50th year, they would have a Jubilee where all debts would be forgiven. And that was just a, a, a common part of that that jewish monetary system i mean think how cool that would be i mean it was it was actually the seventh and the 50th year god had built into their calendar that all monetary debt that you had to be forgiven i i'm in for that how about you that would that would be awesome but that was the way god structured the jewish financial and monetary system so that his people had a practical tangible example of what he did for them as he forgave their spiritual debts, their sins, through, at that point, it was a sacrificial system that they had. For us today, it's through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. And that's what Scripture makes clear, that it's because of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice 
that our debts, that our sins can be forgiven if we come to God and we confess them. 1 John chapter 1, verses 7-9 through 9 says, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that's the promise that we have. If we come to God in Jesus Christ, through Jesus and His sacrifice, and we confess our sins, because of what Jesus has done, God has promised that He will forgive us our sins. And I think we can, we can begin to understand that idea, but I think the thing about this verse, when I've talked to people about this verse before, that seems to trip a lot of people up, is the second half of it. Forgive us our debts. We can, we can understand that through Jesus Christ. When He paid our price, we can be forgiven. We can get that. But it says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So wait a second, what does that mean? Does that mean that our forgiveness from God is conditional? So if I'm lousy at forgiving somebody else, is Jesus saying that, you know, maybe God's not going to forgive me? Because if you go on, down, if you look a little further down the passage, verses 14 and 15, he expounds on what he's talking about there. And he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So now it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, if we choose not to forgive somebody, then we're not going to be forgiven. So, so if I've chosen to follow Christ, and I've committed my life to Him, I've confessed my sins, God's forgiven them, but now somebody has done something just horribly wrong to me. You know, maybe somebody lied about me and I got fired from my job now and I'm out of work. And I just, I hate that person who did that to me. I, I can't forgive them. Not after what they did to me. Not after the way they, they lied about me and they hurt me and my family. I can't forgive them. Well, then, is this verse saying that if I now can't forgive them, that God's no longer going to forgive me? Am I going to lose my salvation? Because Because there are people that they will come and they'll read a verse like this and they'll say, well, that's, that's what God's saying. If you at some point choose not to forgive somebody, then you're no longer a follower of Christ. You're no longer a Christian. So I, I want to make sure that we understand a couple of things about this verse as we look at it this morning. Because I think it is easy to misunderstand. And there are passages of Scripture that are difficult to understand. So this morning, I, I want to help you see that that's not what Jesus is saying. But I'm not just going to stand up here and tell you that's not what Jesus is saying. I want to try and help you understand how I can come to a conclusion um, like that. And in order to do that, we're going to have to take a bit of a rabbit trail. I don't usually like to do this when I'm preaching, but this sometimes they just, they just go this way. Um, we're going to look just briefly, and here's your, your 50 cent theological seminary word for this morning. We're going to look briefly at the subject of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just, I mean, it's a big fancy, you know, Bible college word for how we interpret or how we understand the Bible. And, and so this morning, I just want to give you four very basic rules for proper biblical interpretation that we can apply in, in, in the case of this verse here specifically to help us understand that. And I mean, there's, I'm, I'm going to give you four you can actually, I mean, there's probably, I spent a whole semester in seminary in a class about biblical hermeneutics and how you study and interpret and understand the Bible. So this could be an entire great big long class. I just, in about five minutes, I want to give you four that just a real quick, quick idea of this. Um, so the first rule of biblical hermeneutics I want to tell you this morning is context, context, context. Um, one of my professors in college said, context is king. 
when you are studying a verse, and this is one of the easiest ways that people misinterpret what the Bible says, is they will look at one verse all by itself. If we take this one verse we're looking at this morning all by itself, that says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. We would say, well, if we're not going to forgive somebody else, then I can't be a Christian. We would be taking that verse out of context. When you look at one verse in isolation by itself, that's taking it out of context. Every single verse in the Bible is in the middle of a paragraph, which is in the middle of a larger chapter, which is in the middle of a book, which is all a part of the larger Bible, the Scriptures. Every verse needs to be taken and understood in the context in which it was originally written. So if you want to understand a verse, if you come to a verse and you are struggling to understand it, look at the verses immediately before it, immediately after it. And that will help you take steps to understand that verse in context. Because no verse exists in isolation. And that's one of the biggest traps that preachers can fall into. You know, as you're, you're preaching through a passage and you, you want to make a point on something and so you're, you're going to go to the back of your Bible and you look at your concordance and you say, well, I'm looking for something that has this word in it. Well, here's this one verse that has the word that I want, so I'll just use that verse without looking at the whole context of it. You've got to look at the context of every passage and every verse that you look at. So that's the first one. Context, context, context. Number two is the historical background. And this, this takes into the idea of you have to understand the genre of literature that you're looking at. In the Bible, there's historical literature that's telling us stories like the books of you know, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They're telling the history of the Old Testament people. There's also you know, books that are you know, the, the, the Gospels that tell us the story of the life of Jesus. There's the, the, the um, epistles that are books of, of theology that, that, are, that are teaching us about how we live and how we apply and how we learn and what we know about God. There's also books of prophecy that are talking about the future and the end times. And each of those different types and genres of literature need to be looked at and understood and interpreted in different ways that have to do with their... Um, with the historical background of that genre of literature. So we need to understand the genre. You also need to take into consideration who the author of the book is and who the audience of the book is. Because to truly understand what the Bible's saying, we need to understand what the author was originally trying to say to his original audience. Because when we understand it in that context, then we can begin to bring it and apply it in our own lives today, in our culture in our context. The third thing is you need to look for the plain and the obvious meaning. You know, don't fall into the trap of of going to a verse and saying, I know everybody else says it means this, but there's got to be something deeper, some mystical, deep, hidden meaning that nobody else has captured. Chances are, if you read a verse and you come up with a unique translation or interpretation or understanding of that verse that nobody else in all of church history has ever had, Guess who's wrong? Probably not the rest of all of church history. It's probably you. In most cases, the plain, obvious meaning is going to be the accurate meaning. That clear, obvious interpretation is the correct one. I mean, take into account this also means that there are passages of Scripture that are figurative, and we need to understand that. That's where the idea of context and literature um, and genre comes in. When Jesus is is teaching a parable, we have to understand that that's a parable and there is symbolism that's there. In in books of prophecy, there's symbolism that's there and you have to look and study to understand those things. But in most cases, it's the plain, obvious, um, literal interpretation that's the correct one. And then the last one I'm going to share this morning is let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because the Bible that we have been given, and this is such an amazing thing to think about. This is the Word of God. And one of the unique things about the Word of God, this is a book that was written by over 40 authors over 1,500 years in different geographical regions, but it is a book that is unified in its 
in its themes, in its purpose, in what it says. It is a book that is without contradictions. And so if we come across verses that seem unclear or that seem maybe to contradict what we, we know the Bible teaches somewhere else, it, it means that we need to dig in and we need to do more study and we need to look deeper. Because in, in, in a case where the correct way to understand a verse seems unclear, we need to use other passages of Scripture that are clearer to help us interpret passages that are less clear or more difficult to understand. I mean, even Peter, as he was writing, um, write, writing one of the books of the Bible, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, he was writing and he was talking about the Apostle Paul and some of the letters that Paul had written. And Peter said this about the letters of Paul. He said, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with other scriptures. So even Peter admits, sometimes the Bible is difficult to understand, but we can use Scripture to help us interpret and understand Scripture. So in a case like this here, in Matthew 6, 4 and 14 and 15, where it seems to say, if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us, let me use just a couple of those principles to help us grasp that. First one, context, context, context. The context of what Jesus is talking about here is in the larger context, as I said earlier, of the entire Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, it's at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He is laying out the groundwork for what it means to be one of his disciples, to be one of his followers. If you were going to follow after me, if you're going to be part of my kingdom, these are the values, the lifestyle, the way you need to live as part of my kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, if you are a follower of Christ, you will forgive others. In fact, that's a command that we're given in other places in the Scripture. In, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So, Forgiving other people is not a condition of salvation. Jesus is saying it's a result of salvation. If you come to Christ and you commit your life to Him, you have been forgiven by God. And because of that and because of the change in your life, you will forgive other people. And the second principle that I just walked through of hermeneutics that I want to use to help us understand this is the idea of let Scripture interpret Scripture. And that's to prove the point that forgiving others cannot be a prerequisite or a requirement for salvation. Because if an act on our part of forgiving other people were a prerequisite or a requirement for salvation, that would mean that our salvation was a result of something that we did. And we can know clearly from the Bible that that is not true. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Apostle Paul once again writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So it's not any kind of prerequisite or requirement for salvation. So let me give you two things that I think we can take away from this verse when Jesus is talking about forgiveness and the need to forgive in our own lives. And the first one is this. If we have been truly forgiven by God, we will forgive others. Paul says in Ephesians again, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And secondly, even if we have been forgiven, if we refuse to forgive, it doesn't mean we're going to lose our salvation. It simply means that we are, at that point in our walk with God, people who are living in sin, 
and we're not going to experience the benefits of salvation. Think about it in this way, because every one of you in this room, if you are a follower of Christ, there are times in your life that you struggle with sin. We all know that's true. We may not talk about it much, but we know that that's the way that it is. And whatever sin it is that you struggle with, you know, gossip, lying, you know, lust, adultery, whatever it is, when you are living in sin, there is a break in your fellowship with God. You haven't lost your salvation, but you are losing the benefits of walking with God and the joy and the peace and the fellowship that you have with Him when we walk with God daily. And when we refuse to forgive others, when you harbor that anger, that hurt, that bitterness in your heart and you hold a grudge, once again, that fellowship is broken because that, Jesus clearly says that that is a sin. That is something we should do. We should forgive as we have been forgiven. And when you refuse to do that, it hurts our relationship and our fellowship and our walk with God and the blessing of God in our lives. And, and I know it's difficult. That is, this is one of the hardest things sometimes for people to do who have been hurt. Let me just briefly share a story. There was a, a, a young lady um, that, that I knew when I was a, a youth pastor a number of years ago. And, and she had been through, you know, just a, a horrible childhood. Her, her father was, was abusive, you know, emotionally and, and verbally to her. Um, eventually, her, her father started to, to cheat on her mother. Um, eventually, her father even left her mother, and then he continued on just, just lying about the whole thing. And, and just in as many different ways as he could, trying to cause, it seemed, as much pain and, and, and anguish and, and, and difficulty for for this young lady and her mom and just, just their, their entire family. And when I met her, this, this, this all happened before we came to the church. And when I met her, she was one of the most anger-filled, resentful, hateful people that I knew. She loved God, but she hated her father. And, and honestly, because of all the things that he'd done and the ways, I mean, he would even come to the church to try and stir up trouble for them and just cause grief. And so, I mean, she, from a human perspective, had every right to hate him. And I remember teaching lessons on a number of different occasions about how Jesus calls us to forgive as we've been forgiven. And I remember her coming to me with tears in her eyes saying, Dan, I can't. I can't forgive my dad. You don't know what he's done. And she fought that and she resisted for so long. But eventually she was able as God worked in her life, able to let go of that hurt and let go of that anger and forgive him. And for her a big part of that was realizing that it wasn't you have to forgive and forget and pretend like none of it ever happened. That's not what forgiveness means. Sometimes forgiveness means that, yeah, I will forgive you. I'm not going to hold that against you anymore. But I'm never letting you back in my life so you can hurt me again. Sometimes that's what we have to do because sometimes there are people in this world who are so evil they have no place in your life. And forgiving somebody doesn't mean you have to give them the right and put them in a position where they can hurt you again. And when she began to realize that, she could let go of that hurt. And she could let go of that anger. You know, and, and now God has worked in her life and she's you know, grown up, gotten married. Um, you know, she, she's a, a social worker and she works you know, helping kids who come out of homes like she came out of. Find new loving homes and placing them in adoption. She and her husband have adopted a couple of kids. You know, and to, to see them and, and the love and everything that, that's in their family. Because she came to that point where she realized she had to let go and she had to forgive. And that's what Jesus is telling us to do, is that we need to forgive. So finally you come to the last part of the Lord's Prayer, where he says, verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And to understand that again, we've got to use one of those principles of hermeneutics. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because the Bible clearly teaches us that God does not tempt us. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And He Himself tempts no one. So Jesus isn't saying we have to plead with God not to tempt us. God's not going to tempt us. But the word that He uses here can either be translated as tempting or testing. So it seems that what Jesus is telling us we should pray for is, number one, we should pray for relief from testing. Because we all go through testing. We all go through hard times. We all go through trials in our life. And Jesus is saying we can pray. Ask God for relief, for deliverance from those times of trials, those times of testing. But then secondly, I think we can pray that our testing will not become an occasion for temptation or an occasion for falling, falling into sin. Because as followers of Christ, we have to be aware of the fact that life every day is a spiritual battle. And Satan's influence is behind every attempt to turn a time of testing and trials into a temptation. Because God wants to use that testing. He wants to use those hardships, those trials. God wants to use those to help us grow. I don't have time to get into it this morning, but if, if you're curious about that, you want to learn more, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. James lays it out right there, that how God uses our testing to help us grow and become more like Him. But Satan wants to turn those things into temptations to do evil. So Jesus is teaching us to depend on God, not just for our physical and our spiritual needs and for the forgiveness of our sins, but also turn to God for moral triumph and spiritual victory in all of the spiritual battles of life. So that's the pattern that Jesus has given us for prayer. Worship, submission, dependence, confession, deliverance. And this morning... We're going to do something a little different. It might stretch some of you guys out of your comfort zone a little bit, but I hope you're willing to go with a little bit. As, as the worship team comes, let me explain to you where we're going to go, what, what we're going to do next. Because we're going to give you the opportunity this morning as we close the service. We're going to have a little bit longer um, closing worship set to give you the opportunity to get up and to go out and to practice some of these areas of prayer that Jesus Jesus led us through. So, and I'll, I'll just walk you through. We're going to have, we have about five different stations around the, the auditorium. So let me show you what they are and kind of explain briefly to you what we've got going on. Um, so over here is, is where we're, we're going to give you an opportunity to worship. And you can worship just where you're sitting this morning, obviously. You can stand with um, the worship team as we sing and as we pray. You can also worship, you can come down, you can partake of communion. We have that as an option as well. Or you can also come over here this morning and you have the opportunity to write your own psalm. There's a sheet here that gives you just step-by-step instructions. And I would just encourage you to meditate on God, who He is, what He's done for you this morning. And then just kind of follow that. It's, it's almost like writing a poem about God, to God, a poem of worship. So that's these tables right here, that's what those are for, to, to come and to worship God. The next one is submission. And that's um, back here in the, the back part of this booth, or the, the, these, um, these pews here. And, and submission is going to be an opportunity for you to come and reflect on the, the kingdom of God. So if you have your Bible, you, know, you, can, you can turn to it and you can reflect on the passages in Isaiah 25 and, and, and Revelation 21, a couple that talked about God's coming kingdom. And what that looks like. But I would encourage you as you come to this section, just pray and consider, God, what does it mean for me to be a part of your kingdom? And, you know, as you feel led, you you can bow on your face before God. You can kneel before him. Or maybe it's just sitting here and bowing your head. Any one of those is a physical sign of our submission before God. And it's just prayers of submission saying, God, I submit myself to you. The, the, the third one is the idea of dependence. And we talked about this morning, give us this day our daily bread. We are dependent upon God every day 
for what we need. So it's just an encouragement here to come. And we have some journals on the table here. And before I'm done, I'll bring some pencils over here so you have something to write with. Um, But dependence. Come to God and just in the journals, write down what are you dependent upon God for today? What are you crying out to Him for? And as people write their needs in those books, maybe you can pray for somebody else's needs of what they're seeking and what they're needing from God. So give, bring our, our, our needs to Him. Um, the fourth station is, is confession. And I just encourage you, come here. Sit on this front pew. If there's sin in your life that you need to confess, come down, pray right here. Confess those sins to God. And then come and just as a symbolic act of just reminding us of what happens when we confess. Because when we confess, God says He's faithful and just to forgive. And as a symbolic act, symbolizing our cleansing before God, we have just a bowl of water here and you can come and you can wash your hands and be, and, and be reminded of how you've been cleansed and you've got some towels so you're not dripping water all over. And then finally is the idea of deliverance. And... Um, what I'm going to do is I'll have this piece of paper spread out here on the table and, and come and think of what do you need God either, what do you need Him to deliver you from or what has He delivered you from. And we've got a box of crayons. We'll have the paper spread out on the table here. And just write or draw a picture of what God has delivered you from or what you're asking Him today to deliver you from. So as the worship team sings, we just encourage you to get up out of your seat and come and, and participate and, and pray and, and ask God to approach Him in, in one of these ways. So let me begin our time with prayer and then the worship team will lead us in some songs. Father God, thank You for the example we have in Jesus Christ of His love. Thank You for this model he's given us for the elements that we need to have as a part of our prayer life as we come to you God I pray that this morning that our hearts would be open that we would remember as we come to you and worship that the people around us aren't the audience the people on the stage aren't the audience when we come to worship you you are the audience those of us up front leading worship and, and preaching, we're just simply the guys that stand off the side of the stage to prompt the ones who are the actors, the participants. Help us to realize that everyone here is truly a participant in the worship of you this morning. Don't allow our, our hang-ups, our insecurities to prevent us this morning from coming before you and truly worshiping you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.